be seated. Well, on March 18th, 2017, on National Public Radio, there was an interview that was conducted with the Atlantic writer, Peter Beinart. Beinart had done a bunch of research that had shown that especially among people in their 20s and 30s, there is an increasing rise in secularization. In this case, though, he needed to define what secularization meant, since the term is used a lot nowadays. It does not mean someone who necessarily doesn't believe in God at all. They might believe in God and they might not. But more so, it means that people in this category feel no loyalty to any specific religious institution, denomination, or religious community. And it fits with the growing trends that we see, as the Pew Research shows, about how young people tend to regularly attend any type of religious organization less and less. But Beinhardt wasn't interested just in this trend of secularization, which has been around for a long time, but what some of the kind of results of that are. And what he found was that as secularization increases, oddly enough, so does intolerance. Of course, we've heard for a long time that religion is what creates intolerance, and certainly that's true. But also what's true is that a rise in secularization creates intolerance. Beinart says that as people stop processing issues through traditional or religious lenses, they have to replace that with something else. He speaks both about conservatives and about liberals. When he talks about conservatives, he says the following, quote, And what you see is that conservatives who don't regularly attend church are often more supportive of gay marriage and drug legalization than those who regularly attend church. But there's also evidence that they're actually much more anti-immigrant and perhaps more racially resentful. Think, I think what I'm trying to suggest in my piece is that there seems to be some evidence that as culturally conservative people disengage from religious institutions, they redraw the boundaries of us versus them from religious and moral terms to a divide over race and nation terms. And that's what you're seeing, for instance, with the alternative right which is an ultra-conservative movement that's quite hostile to Christianity and tends to define its conservatism less in terms of religious morality and more in terms of whiteness. Beinhardt continues, though, that this trend happens on both sides. He says, and I quote again, And what's also important about this is that there's a lot of evidence that white Americans who don't regularly attend church do worse economically and are much more pessimistic about the state of the country. And that pessimism is greater among Americans who don't regularly attend religious services than among those who do. As the interview continues, he talks about different groups. And finally, he says something about African Americans. And he says, African Americans remain more tied to the church than do white Americans. And yet, you see the same divide. A generational divide. Where younger African Americans are substantially more likely to be disengaged from religious affiliation. I suggest that in the piece, that, black, that the Black Lives Matter movement is to some degree a product of that. But I think that it is interesting that we are seeing a political moment in which on both the African American left and the kind of white nationalistic right, you're seeing a move towards a politics that's not based on religious language. 
I'm not in any way trying to morally equate these two movements, but that the disappearance of a Christian vocabulary may make the two sides, both right and left, even more alien to one another than they were before. End of quote. What he's talking about is the demise of Christendom, which is the idea that our culture was significantly influenced by Judeo-Christian ethics. Of course, there were very bad things that happened in Christendom, especially against minorities and others, and there were very good things that happened in Christendom. But one thing that any singular view of the world that a culture holds that is advantageous to the culture is it gives a grammar and a vocabulary for the culture to work through its problems. Now, I'm not in any way advocating we go back to Christendom. I simply want us to recognize what was in place and is now not there, which was this common grammar, which allowed people who disagreed to meet at some point on a common ground. The church in particular has to come to the grips with the fact that it is no longer in control of the cultural narrative, and it shouldn't necessarily lament this fact, but it does need to come to grips with it. As the culture continues to secularize and distance itself more and more from Christian grammar and ideas and vocabulary, is it a world that will become more and more polarized and more and more intolerant? I think it will, until whatever the new dominant narrative is rises up to the surface and gives a cohesive vocabulary for the culture once again. All you have to do is look at politics right now to see that this is somewhat at least reasonable assumption to make, right? We've gotten to the point where we can't even talk with people on either side. We're threatened by them and their ideas, and we see this as a significant problem. If the church wants to be authentic to its doctrine and who it says it is, the death of Christendom is a great thing, because it should mean that the church can reform itself neither taking a position on the right or on the left and being identified with either of those two binaries, but instead the church can reclaim its identity as something that God has produced for the world, not against it, not as a political organization, but we might say a truly humanitarian one. Since the church is concerned with not only loving neighbor, but the salvation of the world, and so we could operate that in humanitarian terms. What's interesting for those who are in the church is that those who now are growing up in this culture, where Christendom is no longer the dominant narrative, and maybe have an interest in Christianity, or grew up in Christian homes and then have rejected that or have doubts or whatever that might be, they find that things aren't so simple as it was for other generations. They just took for granted their faith. But now we live in a world where our faith oftentimes just doesn't seem to encapsulate for us the complexity of the different views and things that we want to hold and the people we want to be. What people really are learning now, unfortunately, is to be really good arguers. But inside they are often far more deeply conflicted than they want to let people know. They struggle with doubts, constantly being pushed into binaries of either or, one side or the other, left or right, when many people simply hold a diversity of views, and they don't even quite know sometimes, even within their own diversity, what's really right and what's really wrong.
They're working it out. Doubts, of course, can be good, but they can also make you depressed. Today, I want to take this passage, this story about Jesus, which takes place after his resurrection, when he meets his disciples on the road. And I want to see how Jesus responds to people who trusted him, then found out he wasn't what they thought he was, and then were given an opportunity to trust him again. But in order to do that second trusting, they had to overcome significant doubts. And Jesus has to help them make that movement over their doubts. This is a great passage because it opens with a blessing and it closes with a promise. And you always know you're in good Bible verses when they open with a blessing and they end with a promise. Jesus appears to his disciples out of nowhere, apparently. He wasn't following them. They didn't see him coming. And he says, peace to you. There's the blessing. He doesn't come in wrath or anger or judgment. He comes in a blessing of peace. But then things start to get more complicated, and they have to get more complicated before we can get to the blessing, which ends the section. Let me give you a little bit of the setting so you can understand what's going on. Jesus, for most of his ministry, was seen by these disciples as a kind of radical rabbi. He was upturning everything, and most of his followers, especially Judas, but also Peter and Matthew and some of the others, believed that he was the Jewish Messiah. But for them, what this meant was the Messiah was going to be the person who was going to come in and overthrow Roman rule. The Romans were occupiers of the Jews at this time. There was a lot of kind of messianic fervor in the air at that time. And these men were joining up with Jesus, hoping that he would start a political revolution. The closest thing we might have to them today is kind of a radical Marxist. That's what these men thought they were getting into. But as they spent more time with Jesus, they began to become confused. He never seemed to pick up the sword and start the revolution like they wanted. But they thought they just justified it, because, you know, you can get in that mode. And, and they just thought, okay, well, he's taking his time, or maybe he's going to, um, you know, get to that eventually. He's just setting the stage now. And then the unimaginable happened. Rome won. Rome, the occupier, the, 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 the one who's not supposed to be there. And, and Rome comes in and then kills the apparent Messiah, which means he must not be the Messiah, because after all, if he was the Messiah, how could he lose? The Messiah wins against Rome. And so the disciples have doubts now. Imagine giving three years of your life, leaving your family, selling your possessions to go after this cause, to free your people from a terrible, tyrannical overseer and, and occupier. And, and then at the end of it, they just win again. And now you don't even know what you got into. They hear news from women. An amazing thing in the ancient world, since women weren't allowed to be witnesses of news. But the Bible reports that women actually were the ones who bring the news to the men. And the men believe them to a certain extent, but they want to see it with their own eyes. So they run to the tomb, and Jesus isn't there. Over the series of the next few chapters, where the Gospel of Luke ends, you have different times where Jesus reappears and engages with his disciples. This is one of those times. It's not the first time. It's not the second time. It's the third or other times 
We know he's appeared at least two other times, and you could read some verses that maybe make it assume he appeared even before this again. Now, we have to ask ourselves, why would a Bible writer spend a significant amount of time on paper, which was expensive, and ink, to tell a story of Jesus coming a third time after his resurrection to visit the disciples when he's already done it twice? The reason is that this entire passage is given for us to help us understand how these disciples could overcome their doubts and learn to trust in Jesus again. And so the passage is relevant for us who live in a culture where we don't always know what we believe. Sometimes we hold views very strongly, but if you've kind of had any experience in life for some time, you know that even your strongest held views at some point can be challenged if you're willing to listen. And that's a scary process, by the way, when that happens. Now the first thing that Jesus has to do is show them that he actually is resurrected. Of course, this is a miracle, and it's an object of faith. It's, it's the central thing that Christians believe. We have to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, or we have no religion. And in this account, he does something he's done in some of the other accounts. He shows them his physical body. It says, but they were startled and frightened, and they thought that they had seen a ghost. These are superstitious people in the ancient world, after all. And notice what Jesus says, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your heart? So this is the problem that needs to be solved. See my hands and feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. I mean, you know, ghosts are transparent, they're ethereal, they're not corporeal. Jesus is saying, come on, come touch me, I'm, I'm real. Nobody wants to do it. Now you, now you can imagine, they're sitting around a bonfire. We know this because in a few verses they're going to eat some cooked fish. So they're sitting around this bonfire, and Jesus shows up. They think it's a ghost. They're terrified. He says, touch me. And you know, somebody's like, I'm not going to do it. You do it, Matthew. I'm not going to do it. You do it. I'm not going to do it. You do it. Nobody wants to do it. So Jesus does something that's a little bit funny, I think. He shows them his hands and feet, and while they still disbelieved for joy, so they're excited this could be true, but they don't believe it. They're still disbelieving. And we're marveling. He said to them, got anything to eat? I mean, when all else fails, eat some dinner. And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it before them. What's he doing? They didn't want to touch him. So he's showing them that he's not a ghost, because only flesh and blood could eat. Even if a ghost could pick up something, hypothetically, and they were to put it in their mouth, it would just fall to the floor. So Jesus is showing them he really is corporeal, that is, he has a body. Now, he's opened up this passage, as I said, with the blessing of peace be with you. Now you can see why he had to open with this blessing. Because they were afraid that he would be a ghost. And if he's not a ghost, then that complicates everything. And now what do you think? I mean, what do you make of this? See, it's hard for doubters to have peace. Doubt is like the dripping of a drop, like the Chinese water torture, 
where they just put you in a room in the dark and you just hear, drop, drop, drop for weeks. And people would go mad. They'd go crazy because the drop, drop was all they were allowed to hear. Doubt is like that. I mean, you can ignore it or you can try, but if you're really honest with yourself and you have internal integrity, if you doubt something, drop, drop, drop. So we know that Jesus is coming to bring peace and he wants to heal their anxiety and he wants to open their minds to a truth that they find difficult to believe. So he moves from showing them his physical body to helping them see the reality that's before them. And he points them back to the Jewish scriptures, what Christians call the Old Testament, what Jews call the Tanakh. And he, he points them there and he recounts to them that this resurrection has been foretold in all of the Jewish Bible. And if they simply could open themselves to the possibility of it, they might see that what their eyes see is true. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That's the Old Testament. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. And you are the witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This seems strange, and to our modern ears it seems deeply ineffective. I mean, after all, we're the people who kind of want signs and miracles, and if God is real, show yourself. If God is real, do something. God, if you want me to believe, make me believe beyond all doubt, and then I'll believe. God, why do you make it so hard to believe? But here's the interesting thing. Anytime Jesus does a sign or a miracle, like even raising from the dead, it doesn't cause conversions. I remember when I was a kid, and I saw the magician David Copperfield on TV. And you know what he did? He made the Statue of Liberty disappear. I saw it. it did you, any of you remember this? He had a big curtain up on it, and it was over there, and he had all these lights, and then he had helicopters fly through where it was. It was amazing. It was a primetime event. It was all over the nation. Except we know he didn't, because he was an illusionist. And that's the problem with miracles. They seem really great, but you can always just kind of, eh, yeah, I don't know how he did it. I don't know how David Blaine drank all that poison and had a snake in his mouth and lived, but he did. And we just know it can't be true. So the miracles don't work, and seeing Jesus resurrected doesn't work. So he points them back to the scriptures. He basically is saying, if you would actually read the Bible and consider it and think about it, you might believe Maybe that's why the Bible's been considered such a dangerous book in our, throughout history. Even people who didn't believe it was true, and rulers who didn't believe it was true, knew that it could galvanize people, that it could capture their hearts, that the book did something. For those who are willing to listen. 
St. Paul tells us that faith does not come by seeing, but comes by hearing. Jesus shows them his body, but it's not enough. They still have doubts. Even though they're joyful and they're marveling, they still don't understand. To get rid of their doubts, or at least to deal with their doubts, they have to see how Jesus can make sense to them. Jesus is showing them that all of history was leading to this moment for them when they would see him. In fact, he says so. He says in verse 48, you are my witnesses to these things. Isn't that amazing? They're witnesses to a story that they don't even understand. And this is the strange thing about Christianity. I can tell you as a pastor that one of the strange things about church is that it attracts people from all different backgrounds and all different stories and all different socioeconomic backgrounds and differences. Even in my church in New Jersey, I have people with amazing stories and, and they come from all different nations and they have had all different backgrounds. I know someone who grew up sleeping in a bathtub here in New York City and now is a very successful person. I know immigrants who came from Norway. I know relatives of missionaries who went overseas because they believed in Jesus so much that when the church sent them, they packed all their belongings in coffins because they could afford to send them, but they didn't know that they could afford to send them back, and they went anyway. Such was their dedication. If you start to listen to the stories of the people in church, you start to see a common theme that develops. People believe this. They really do. But let me tell you something else. Let's peer behind the curtain, and I'll give you a little bit of pastoral insight. A lot of people believe, but those same believers come to me and share with me their unbeliefs, their doubts. They're often frightened by them. Oftentimes, people believe that the way that you overcome doubt is by getting more information. So if you're really traumatized by doubt, what most people do, their gut reaction is, is to seek out certainty. Because certainty is the opposite of doubt. So I'm going to look for things that are going to make me more certain. It's a perfectly legitimate strategy, but it rarely works. And you know why it really doesn't work. Socrates will tell you why it doesn't work. Because there's no end to skepticism. This is why they killed Socrates. Because Socrates got rid of certainty. You know the story of Socrates? Socrates and his Socratic method was really simple. It simply went like this. But why? Well, we believe here in Greece that philosophy is the true way to happiness. But why? Well, because everyone wants to be happy. But why? Because happiness will make your life better. Why will happiness do that? Well, because if you're happy, you're, you're not sad. So you're saying you can always be happy and never sad? Well, no. Well, but you can try, you can maximize your happiness. 
But how? See, Socrates was a deconstructionist. He just constantly said, but why? But why? He's like the annoying five-year-old. But why? But why? But why? But why? Shut up. Kill him. That's what they did. <laughs> That's what they did. You can never fix doubt with certainty because I can always ask you, but why? Or I can, I can do the other one that we use a lot of times. Really? I love this one, and by love I mean hate. People will come up to me, and they will say, you know, I thought I, I thought I believed. And then the speaker and the pastor said to me, but if you really believe, well, now what are we all supposed to do? How am I supposed to know if I really believe when you put it like that? Shakespeare wrote in Hamlet, to thine own self be true. But he puts that in the words of a character who's not very truthful, which maybe is Shakespeare's way of saying, can you be true to yourself? I mean, I hear this all the time in society. It's a guiding ethic, be true to yourself. I, it sounds great. I don't have any objections to it other than how. I really want to know how. How do I be true to myself? Myself is complex. I mean, Freud knew that. Any psychologist knows that. I'm not always even aware of what I am feeling. I can't put words to my feelings sometimes. I had a family crisis two weeks ago. I had to run up to Connecticut. We were dealing with a big family matter. Some things had come out and there was a big struggle. And I remember driving the four hours home and thinking to myself, I don't actually know how I feel. I can't put words to my feelings. They're just too complex right now. To thine own self be true. What does that mean? So Jesus basically points them back to the scriptures. And you know what he really says? I mean, I'm paraphrasing an idea here. Who has the better story? That's how you already live. That's how you already live. If you had grown up in the USSR, you might think that Marxism was a better story than democracy. And maybe if you're living in democracy, you think socialism is a better story than democracy because you're attracted by the equity in it. The fact of the matter is we don't really believe things because we're absolutely certain about them. We believe things because they tell better narratives that make sense of life for us. And who can, can make the better narrative, the narrative that rings more true is the narrative that we will entrust ourselves to. But that doesn't mean we entrust ourselves to that narrative just completely without any doubts. In fact, I would argue, and I don't have time to make a strong argument for you, but I would just as a passing point, I would argue that if you doubt, you must believe. Because how can you doubt if you don't believe, right? Doubt is like you believe something and you're questioning it. So if you have doubts, you have belief. I don't know, and they must exist, but I don't know any Christians who are certain about their faith. I don't know any religious person who is, and I don't know any 
political person with their political views who are certain about any of those things. And if you ever were to meet that person, I would be deeply afraid because they're going to veer towards the fundamentalist side of things. And they're not going to be a listener, and they're not going to probably care for you. They're just going to care for their own narrative. What Jesus is doing here is inv inviting them to go back and look at the scriptures, and he's basically saying, what is the narrative that is told there? Does it make sense of life? Now, he's going to do one more thing than just that. He says in verse 48, You are my witnesses to these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Now, from the Christian sense, what he's doing here is he's saying this. Start with a blessing. Peace be with you. Deal with the issues of doubt. Doesn't Notice in the passage... They don't come out of this passage certain. The disciples come out of this passage hopeful. They have confidence. They don't have certainty. And that's another way of saying they have faith. But then he gives them a promise, which is how the passage ends. And the promise is that they're to stay in the city because they're going to be clothed with power from on high. That power that he's talking about is later in a few, in the next book that this guy writes. Luke writes two books. And he'll write the book of Acts next. And he'll tell you what that means in the book of Acts. What he means there is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person of God. And I'm not going to get into deep Trinitarian theology here. But I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. Because I'm going to speak about the Spirit in this context a little bit outside of maybe the Orthodox way of talking about him. Which would be to say he's a person. But we might think of what Jesus is saying is... God is giving you his heart so that you can believe. That's what the Spirit sort of does. And the best way that I can maybe describe what this might be like in human terms, because we are dealing with the supernatural when we're dealing with the Spirit, but in human terms would be when you fall in love with someone. When you fall in love with someone, it's not a decision. You might make a decision to get married, but the decision is the result of something that's already been happening that's quite dynamic beforehand. And what's happening beforehand is you're seeing that other, your significant other, as an extension of your dreams, right? Your future now has that person in the future. Your life together is now entangled and enjoined with that person. And you start to see the unfolding of your life as being shared and joined with that other person. And what that means is that two hearts have kind of come together and they have decided to journey together. And the work of the Holy Spirit is to help you see the heart of God so that your heart can be joined to His. Because we have all these prejudices about God. How then does the Spirit come so that our hearts might see God for who He is? It comes in a way that St. Paul says is stupid. At least stupid according to those who don't believe. But Paul admits it's stupid. It comes from hearing God's Word. God's essence is in His Word. As we spend time in His Word and hear His Word, our hearts begin to become at least open 
to the story that God is telling about himself and about us and about the world. The question then becomes, not are we certain that this message is true, because you can never really be certain. Don't be deceived. You never can be. But you can have confidence, just like you have confidence in all the other narratives that you believe and that you live your lives by. That's all faith is. Faith is holding on to the things that you believe to be true despite your changing moods. It's not being a fundamentalist. It's not being closed off to other stories. But it's having a confidence that in the telling of that story, it makes sense for the world. It gives hope to the world. That's what this passage is about. Jesus telling them in a sense that their doubts are okay. They're, they're still going to be his witnesses. What they need is to go back to the Word so that they can find the confidence to move forward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. You are good to us. And we pray that your goodness will help us to be good to our neighbors. Lord, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that in it we may find your heart, that we may see Jesus, who has given his life for us, that we might live, and that we might love and serve others. Lord, thank you for this time tonight, and as we finish up our worship tonight, pray that it will draw us closer to you, and that our doubts may be contextualized into the grand story that you tell, about how you are for the world, not against it that you love people and want to save them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.